is Bloomberg Surveillance. You can't count on the United States providing all the demand for the world. We can't be the consumer first and last resort. There needs to be more. I think the Fed got it right last December when they said they would have four increases this year. Investment really is the global issue that we're facing a shortage of right now, and that's really holding back the global economies. Bloomberg Surveillance, your link to the world of economics, finance, and investment on Bloomberg Radio. Good morning, I'm Michael McKee. It is 7 a.m. on Wall Street. It's 8 p.m. in Shanghai, where Chinese officials are dealing with a bit of a public relations oops. A more than 6% decline in Chinese shares the day before the G20 finance ministers and central bankers arrived to talk about stabilizing the markets. Yeah. <laughs> embarrassing. It is, uh, it is, at least it's only embarrassing because it wasn't a market killer for the rest of the world. The rest of the world is stable. This morning, after that big turnaround in U.S. markets yesterday, uh, European bourses are higher. The stock 600 up by six points now, 1.8%. It's a 2.3% increase for the FTSE, 133 points. Brexit worries calming down, maybe. The DAX, 128 points higher, 1.4%. We should mention better than forecast GDP for the U.K. in the fourth quarter. That may uh, be helping that stock market. As I mentioned, Shanghai was down 6.4%, but Tokyo up 1.4%. So go figure. The bond market, about where it was when we started this show yesterday, the 10-year note yield at uh, 1.74%, the five-year 1.2 and 75 basis points for your two-year. Not a lot of movement in currencies either. Right now, the dollar index is down five basis points, basically, uh, little change. The yen, 112.40, about where it was yesterday. The euro touched stronger, 110.30. And the pound on the back of that better uh, GDP report is higher, still below 140, 139.63, but it is up by three-tenths of a percent this morning. Uh, and oil prices, little changed on the day, 3206 West Texas, 3419 Brent. Big surplus yesterday, but oil seems to have stable. So, is this good news? Is it the calm before the storm? Well, that's the view of Saxo Bank's Steen Jacobson. Yesterday, Tom, Treasury Secretary Jack Lew, you'll remember, told us there is no global crisis, but Saxo's uh, chief, Some disagree. Yeah, Saxo's chief economist. Among them, uh, you say, Steen, just wait. March may be ugly. Absolutely. Um, I, I think the steam uh, and the fact that a central banker or finance minister is actually uh, indicating that nothing is going on is probably my biggest concern. If you look at the PMI in the U.S., if you look at China down 6% again this morning on higher money market rates, if you look at Japan into negative interest rate, the Japanese banking index is down 25% since they moved into negative interest rate and 45% since the peak of the euphoria after the economics was introduced. I think there is a pattern here that March could be pretty nasty. We all have expectation that BOJ has another bazooka, and we also expect Draghi to be coming in uh, uh, with full force trying to talk to the market again. The problem is I think the Japanese experience with negative interest rate is already indicating what will happen to the European banking sector, and that is that it will be a huge tax on the bank's earnings power, first because they have to protect the depositors from negative interest rate, as we see in my country, Denmark, right now. And secondly, of course, because the yield curve goes, instead of steepening, it actually goes flat to, to inverse, which is the worst scenario you can have. On top of that, of course, it reflects an economy where the growth rate at the top line level is uh, remaining very sluggish. So, you know, a lot of concerns, uh, but 
you know, I don't have the uh, prediction, uh, unfortunately, that I don't know what will happen, but I'm very concerned for March also because I think a lot of things are lining up and a lot of hope is placed on the, on these central bankers and finance ministers. And well, in my experience, be, they tend to disappoint. <laughs> are they going to be reacting to what's going on or are they going to be the cause of what's going on? They will always be the cause uh, when you look in the, in the in the light of history. They are always the cause. I think, you know, think about back to the time before Bank of England as the first central bank was introduced. We rarely had any financial crises ever since the Bank of England has been introduced in 1694. Every 25 years we had a major crisis. So I think that is your academic right. uh, response. <clears throat> no, you bring a lot of that history to your research. Good morning, everyone. Bloomberg Surveillance brought to you by Invesco. Invesco believes it's time to bench the benchmarks. To consider active management and factor-based strategies, find out more at Invesco.com slash high conviction, I-N-V-E-S-C-O, Invesco.com slash high conviction. We thank them for their support. We are thrilled to bring you Steen Jacobson. He writes razor-sharp notes, opinionated notes, out of Saxo Bank in Copenhagen. Steen, uh, you talk about two canaries in the coal mine. It's a worn-out cliche, but you're brilliant on the linkages of the two canaries chirping. What are the canaries, and why are they chirping together? Yeah, so the first one, of course, is the easy one, which is the uh, the sterling and the Brexit and the whole conversation about the the sterling, whether they're going to be opting in or opting out. But I think the bigger background to that, of course, is the fact that it, de facto Europe is now in two tiers. Uh, UK got a deal uh, this past weekend, which is and constitutes a clear violation of the principle of the EU. So whatever happens with the UK, I think the bigger implication here is actually is negative for Europe. But sterling is back to levels which is and has only been seen during the peak of the financial crisis in 2005, 2008, 135 being the next level probably. So that is the European uh, sort of uh, whistle uh, that, that has been blown. And, of course, the go-to currency uh, in terms of flight is always the yen and has historically always been the yen. I've actually been long enough, uh, like you, Tom, in the market to know that when things start to, to get worse and the outlook version in terms of the risk scenario is always the yen we go to. And we are, you know, we have taken out all of the gains since economics in the dollar-yen rate. And on top of that, as I just mentioned, the banking index and the topics index in the, in the Japan is under severe pressure. Basically, all of economics has been lost in the space of two months. On top of that, we see a huge amount of repatriation in the yen. Of course, today, the yen is up one big figure, so it's sort of counter-moving counter right. to that. But I think the yen is your leading indicator. And think back to 87. Think back to most of the, the financial crises in, in the in Asian financial crisis. Very often, the impulse to the marketplace comes from Asia. And in my opinion, the Japanese story, the yen story, is the one leading right. story to all other indicators did, right now. Did you note, Michael McKee, how Mr. Jacobson partitioned him and me as fossils and did not mention you because of your Peyton Manningist ute? <laughs> well, I appreciate that, Steve. Uh, you know, Tom is uh, experienced. We'll put it that way. <laughs> Just keep it, keep it going, folks. Keep it going. Uh, Bank of Japan, as you say, they're expected to take additional action given the loss of uh, progress over the last uh, couple of weeks. Uh, are they doing the wrong thing now? Would they be better off 
getting out of the business of trying to manage the economy, leaving it to the fiscal authorities or letting the Japanese markets clear however they might do that. Absolutely, but as you indirectly through the question is also saying, it's impossible. Uh, just this morning, the uh, B of J, Governor Kuroda, was in front of the parliament. He took a lot of sticks from the parliamentarians. Even within the Bank of Japan, there is a huge diversion on whether negative interest works. There's a very vocal part of the B of J saying this is actually adding to the commotion, not return, not reducing risk. But I think, you know, in a perfect world, and, and unfortunately, the world with bankers and politicians is not a perfect world, but that, that then they will all step aside and just leave it to the long-term things that will work for an economy, right. which, of course, is productivity, infrastructure investment, and a focus on the whole incentive structure of how white right. people and how they allocate capital. Steen, how do you respond to the optimists saying we will find productivity, we will find technological pro- progress, even in Europe? will at least get the stability and stasis. How do you push back against that inherent optimism? I don't, Tom, because it's right over the long term, but we cyclically we're in a down period in terms of productivity, and I have the luxury of going to about 35 countries on an average year. I meet thousands upon thousands of smart, aggressive, in, innovative people uh, who in the microeconomy, as I like to call it, is trying to do better to do, you know, with a higher profit and productivity. But the fact of the matter is, and the way we measure productivity, we are on a negative downward spiral. I mean, it seems like people think that getting more apps on your Apple phone is actually productivity, uh, which of course is not in economic terms. But, but, but the pushback is that yes, that could be at the end of the rainbow some sort of improvement. That, but that will be quantum computing or something of that magnitude. The fact is that technology-wise, productivity has been on on the downtrend for a very long time, and a lot of that has to do with the way we do business today. Think about that concept like digitization. Digitization works in order to save money, but if that save money is not reinvested into new and better quality product. What we end up with is a business model where the product gets worse and the experience of buying the product gets, you know, indifferent from each other. Let's come back. Steen Jacobson is the uh, chief economist at Saxo Bank, and uh, he has a different view, shall we say, than the secretary of the Treasury. Well, yeah, but uh, he's also not a public official. This is great. Uh, we're getting a huge response from our comments uh, from Copenhagen uh, this morning. Futures up five, Dow futures up 43. As Mike mentioned, all in all, a constructive tape. Oil with a nice bid, 32.08 on West Texas Intermediate this morning. This hour of surveillance is brought to you by Westchester Subaru. Visit westchestersubaru.com. Here's John Tucker with news headlines. Uh, Houston uh, will be the site of tonight's Republican presidential debate with Donald Trump rivals. They'll get one more chance to try and derail the Republican frontrunner before Super Tuesday. The White House said it'd be considering Republican Governor Brian Sandoval of Nevada as a possible nominee to the Supreme Court. And Washington State, a new variety of apple about to make its debut. Scientists at Washington State University have come up with Cosmic Crisp, which has been developed over the last 20 years. Global News, 24 hours a day, powered by 2,400 journalists in more than 150 mm-hmm. news bureaus around the world. I'm John Tucker. Cosmic Crisp, is the, Cosmic Crisp is the 18-year-old socks, which you find. I thought it was 
A breakfast cereal. Yeah, it could be a breakfast cereal. It sounds like it's going to have alcohol in it. Well, John Tucker helping mm-hmm. us out this morning here. We'll get an idea on a gallon of gas Things at we some don't point want during the show. Futures up five, Dow Futures up 45. Michael McKee and Tom Keene, coast to coast, worldwide. Bloomberg surveillance. Bloomberg Surveillance is brought to you by your Tri-State BMW Centers. Visit them online at TriStateBMW.com. At BMW, they make only one thing, the ultimate driving machine. Global business news 24 hours a day at Bloomberg.com, the Radio Plus mobile app. And on your radio, this is a Bloomberg Business Flash. And I'm Karen Moscow. This update's brought to you by Eisner Amper. When entrepreneurs face challenges like choosing a business structure or access to capital, they call the accountants and advisors at Eisner Amper. Connect with them, EisnerAmper.com slash tech. Best Buy reporting fourth quarter profit that beat analyst estimates while its forecast for the first quarter missed. And shares are down 3.3%. Kohl's fourth quarter profit beat. Treasuries are higher as oil falls. U.S. stock index futures reverse declines. They're moving higher. S&P E-mini futures up four and a half points. Dow E-mini futures up 42. NASDAQ E-mini futures up 10. DAX in Germany is up 1.8%. Ten-year Treasury up 432nd. See yield 1.73%. NYMEX crude oil down three-tenths percent or 10 cents to 32.05 a barrel. And COMEX gold is down half percent or $6.10 to 12.33 an ounce. The euro, $1.1039, and the yen, $112.51. That's a Bloomberg Business Flash. Tom and Mike. Karen, uh, thanks so much. Greatly appreciate it. Good morning, everyone. Futures up five, as Karen mentions. A better tape. Steen Jacobson with us of Saxo Bank, Copenhagen. Steen, a lot of pros that we speak to look at Asia DXY, which partitions a blended, bundled Asia currency mix, including China but does not include the yen. How do you look at the prism that is different Asia currencies? Well, I think a lot of what goes on in China, even in the worst case, is contained because they have the financial ability to maneuver and do something. And that is also the case for a lot of the currencies included in the Asian DXY. But in Japan, you have a free trading market. You don't have the ability anymore of the central bank or the political system to help. So I think the yen remains the most important single Asian currency. That together with Aussie, which I think is the proxy for all of Asia's growth and the potential uh, on the dollar. I think in Aussie you actually have uh, everything you need to know about the world in terms of economic development. Why then everybody get to, does everybody get so upset about movements in the uh, Chinese renminbi? Because it's a change from the uh, standard operation procedure that we've seen over time, which is a sort of a, a lazy uh, peg to the U.S. dollar. Now, and I, and I think it's totally misunderstood, and I think with all the respect for Anglo-Saxon educated economists, they tend to look at China with the eyes of a balance sheet. The balance sheet of China is one pool of capital. It is a long plan. It's not a short, it's not a, it's not a soft landing, it's not a hard landing, it's a long landing. And I think in between, you know, trying to find a hard or a soft landing, and not recognizing it's a long landing, you miss the point that on the currency side, what China wants is to internationalize the renminbi. The internationalization of the renminbi is a natural extension of the Asian Investment Bank, of the geopolitical strategy of closing in on a trading zone that goes from the eastern seaboard of China to Venetia and then all the way down to Cape Hope. 
don't forget, in 10 years' time, I will wager you a, a good dinner at a steakhouse in New York that most of the financing Whoa. to the Asian markets will come from, uh, not come from U.S. raised dollar uh, uh, liabilities, but it will be raised through right. China and renminbi. So, the, you know, a long answer to a short question. The renminbi internationalization is the answer to your question. Mike, make a reservation uh, what, there. Well, no. we're making a reservation <laughs> right now, but Mike, pick it up here. But I do want to point out that shot. The young man from Copenhagen took it Anglo-Saxon houses, bankers, strategists. Did you see that? Well, he, he took a shot from he's, Copenhagen. He's, he's dinging you and the bank. It was like a Baltic shot is how I put that. My jump in are you confident? So you're confident that the Chinese are going to be able to manage the transition to a the yuan being a reserve currency? Yes, that I'm very confident of. But... But my, my confidence doesn't go to the fact that I think it's a good model or a great model or a different model. What I'm trying to say is that when you don't understand an economy, and clearly a lot of people, including myself, do not fully get the Chinese economy, but you cannot do it from a, a premise of trying to figure out the assets and liabilities. Don't forget that the, the whole exercise by the government in China is to – penalize the private saving, which is roughly anywhere between 40 and 50 percent of GDP. I mean, this private saving rate in the U.S. is 5 percent of GDP. Which of these two countries do you think has the greater ability to do mistakes over the next 20 years? Thank you. Thank you so much. Steen Jacobson, greatly appreciate it. With Soxel Bank, put out a bunch on social. You'll look for this out on our, our digital uh, product as well. Mike, Mr. Bullard. Speaking over at CNBC, that's the French version, CNBC, I love this quote, Fed not on freight train path. You have to be the St. Louis bank to say Fed <laughs> not those, on a freight train path. All those trains passing nope. through the Midwest. Basically, he's trying to reassure the markets that it's not automatic that you're going to see a rate increase every other meeting. Uh, he has switched sides. He was <laughs> one of the more anxious to raise rates last year. Now he's concerned. He gave a speech last night, uh, upon which this is all based, uh, expanding on his view that inflation expectations have fallen too far, and that will make it harder to get inflation up, and that means yeah. that the Fed should not be raising rates. And the now. forward guidance, Diane Swank, out in the Midwest as well, in Chicago, um, St. Louis is, is, is west of, sh of Chicago. Is that? I think I can... Barely. Say it goes, it, it, it's very close. I, That's I'm, a very I'm, good question. My only knowledge is, is the baseball team wins. The others don't. They're basically um, sort of north and south of each other. But, but this headline is important and goes to what Ms. Swank, Dr. Swank said yesterday, uh, which is want to get away from predicting number of rate rises. Which is what? What is forward guidance, Michael? How do you define predicting the number of rate rises? <laughs> okay, that's what I, that's where I was hoping uh, to go. I mean, they they want it. They want to have it. But they haven't figured out what they want. They want it both ways, but they haven't figured out how to do it yet. Yeah, I, 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 I'll go with that, and that's with respect, is a work in progress. Shameless plug, 5 a.m. tomorrow morning, <coughs> surveillance on Bloomberg Television. Mike, I, I, maybe we can drag you out for this if we can figure out the schedule. Robert Hormatz and Richard Berner that's talking about a move back to pre-crisis when they were on the watch at Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley. It took Rachel Wurstman, our executive producer, had to jump through like 18 hoops to get the burner entourage to agree with the Hormats entourage. Dick's been busy saving the country. Yeah. Yes, but really looking forward to that. Maybe we'll try to get you out there. I mean, it's really it's a very emotional thing yeah. for us folks with what we've been through. 
uh, over the last eight, nine um, years have Berner and Hormats together. St. Louis is west of Chicago. I'm looking at a map, just so you know. I, I knew that. I, I saw it. I was in St. Louis as a kid when the raging debate was with the arch meet at the top. I was literally, we were to some eclipse or something. And that was the, the arch did meet at the top, for those of you that are in a need-to-know basis. Futures up five. Bloomberg Surveillance. Bloomberg Surveillance is brought to you by CIT. From transportation to healthcare to manufacturing, CIT offers commercial lending, leasing, and treasury management services for small and middle market businesses. Learn more at CIT.com. Put knowledge to work. Broadcasting live to New York, Bloomberg 1130, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991, to Boston, Bloomberg 1200, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Radio Plus app and Bloomberg.com. This is Bloomberg Surveillance. Good morning at 730 on Wall Street. I'm Michael McKee, along with Tom Keene. This is Bloomberg Surveillance. Here's... A couple of things happening uh, in the company's space that you'll want to know about before trading starts in about two hours from now. Best Buy, not good news for them. Uh, earnings per share, $1.53 for the most recent quarter, better than the $1.39 that was forecast, but that's on fourth quarter profit that was 7.7% weaker than in the same quarter a year ago. Investors shrugging off $20 billion in losses, rewarding two of North America's biggest natural gas producers yesterday. Chesapeake Energy and Encana rose 23% each. Lloyd's Banking Group raising its dividend, introducing a special payout and indicating it may have reached the end of charges for wrongly sold payment protection insurance. It cost it $5.6 billion last year. And Anheuser-Busch InBev reported fourth quarter earnings that missed analyst estimates. Americans apparently drank less beer. Hard to believe, but apparently true. Now let's bring in John Tucker and take a look at the latest world and national headlines. John. And Michael Houston will be the site of tonight's Republican presidential debate with Donald Trump rivals getting one more chance to try and derail the GOP frontrunner before Super Tuesday. There's a state of emergency in Virginia. That's where four people were killed after tornadoes damaged homes and left thousands without power across the state. China's defense ministry says the commander of U.S. forces in the Pacific smeared China while seeking additional defense funding for the U.S. Congress. A spokesman strongly criticized Admiral Harry Harris Jr.'s testimony before Congress this week in which Harris said China was militarizing the South China Sea. And a Coast Guard vessel overturned after it was sent to assist a fishing boat that ran aground in an inlet off New York City. The crew of the Coast Guard vessel and those aboard the fishing boat did make it safely to shore early this morning. Global News, 24 hours a day. Powered by 2,400 journalists and more than 150 news bureaus around the world. I'm John Tucker. Michael. Thanks, John. Time now for the Ray Catino Auto Group Bloomberg NBC Sports Update. Here's John Stashower. John. All right, Mike, latest Nick lost last night at Indiana, a game where they led at halftime, tied going to the fourth quarter. They had three-point shots in the last two seconds that would have either tied the game or given them the lead. Neither went in. The Pacers won 108-105. Paul George, 27 points, all but two in the second half. Christophe Porzingis scored 22, but Carmelo Anthony had only 14 on five of 20 shooting. Both missed threes down the stretch, and the Knicks suffered their 13th loss in the last 15 games. But Porzingis called it a moral victory. I think today we got back to to the team that, that we are actually are. We were playing physical. We were not letting guys you know, push us around. And we, 
and um, that's that's the team we, we are, and that's the team we got to be every night. And so I think from now, this is the game that we can build on and, and go from here. Back at the Garden tomorrow to play Orlando. Golden State got a combined 65 points from the all-star backcourt of Steph Curry and Klay Thompson. The win at Miami raises the Warriors' record to 51-5. and They called it the biggest game between Catholic schools in St. John's and Georgetown in 1985. Fifth-ranked Xavier avenged a 31-point loss earlier in the year to Villanova, knocked off the top-ranked Wildcats 90-83. to With the Bloomberg NBC Sports Update, I'm John Stashauer. Thank you, John. Uh, let's check the driver of the markets. Oil, West Texas, 3208 is down two-tenths of a percent. Brent crude, 3414 is off by eight-tenths of a percent, and oddly enough, not having an impact. Futures are higher in the United States. Stocks are higher in Europe. We'll talk with Vince Piazza from Bloomberg Intelligence about oil coming up here on Bloomberg Radio. This is Bloomberg Surveillance. I'm Michael McKee, along with Tom Keen. As I mentioned, S&P futures are up by four points, two-tenths of a percent. Same gain for Dow e-mini futures. They're up 31 points. Uh, NASDAQ 100 e-minis up five points, tenth of a percent. The stock 600 in Europe up six points right now. That is a 1.9% gain on the day. So green on the screen except for in China, where we uh, did see a 6% decline today. That's the outlier, but it hasn't affected everyone else right now. Right now, let's check in with Bob Moon, the Bloomberg NJIT STEM report, brought to you by New Jersey Institute of Technology, partnering with government and industry to apply the university's world-class research assets to innovate and spur economic growth. Learn more at NJIT.com. Robert? Michael, good morning. At 735 on Wall Street, here's what's making news in science, technology, engineering, and math. We would if we could, but we can't. That's the essence of Tim Cook's argument against helping the FBI crack into a terrorist iPhone. As the clock ticks toward a California court's deadline to respond tomorrow, the Apple chief was interviewed by ABC News and explained that it's not a matter of just opening up the phone, but rewriting special software code to reverse Apple's carefully crafted privacy protections. If we knew a way to get the information on the phone that we haven't already given, if we knew a way to do this that would not expose hundreds of millions of other people to issues, we would obviously do it. And Cook told ABC News the government is going too far. What is at stake here is can the government compel Apple to write software that we believe would make hundreds of millions of customers vulnerable around the world including the U.S. The government claims it only wants access to one dead terrorist encrypted smartphone, while Cook says this will obviously lead to unlimited requests. He says his company is standing tall on principle and argues that there's probably more information about you on your phone than there is in your house. And that's this morning's Bloomberg NJIT STEM report. Michael. hope nobody's torturing my phone. (laughs) Give up everything they know. Bob Moon, thank you very much. Vince Piazza uh, is in charge of our coverage of the oil and energy industry for Bloomberg Intelligence. And we asked him to come by because we've been talking a lot about uh, the influence of oil on the markets and where we go from here, especially a month ahead of when the banks all uh, 
reset the loans mm -hmm. that they have made to uh, energy uh, exploration and production companies. And so what we wanted to do is uh, is kind of get uh, caught up with you, Vince, because it's been a little while, about where we are. Uh, with I know it's impossible to predict prices, basically, but um, we were talking with a guest earlier this week who said uh, prices could go to $10 a barrel because the, the marginal cost of just turning on the taps is still so low, even if we cut back on uh, new wells out there. Well, I think that is in part true. Um, what we have seen of late, we've ha we have seen a few green shoots. So the net petroleum draw that uh, we saw on Wednesday uh, was a step in the right direction. Um, crude did build, but the refined product side, uh, they all declined. So net-net, you had a, a small, modest draw. Uh, production continues to bleed down, uh, modest as well, but still continues to bleed down. Uh, what you really need to see is a better sentiment on the uh, demand side. Uh, right now, the imbalances remain wide, and investor indifference to the space remains wide as well. Uh, so still a lot of wood to chop. I've used that term several times here. But you still have, across the petroleum value chain, uh, significant imbalances that you need to work through. Uh, crude, 36% above the five-year average. This is known on the products side themselves, gasoline, and also distillates quite robust relative to the five-year average. We're coming into uh, I'm in the process of, of, of a seasonal maintenance. Uh, so you yeah. still have some some negative headwinds to push through, but there are some green shoots uh, that we do see in front of us, perhaps. Everybody's saying, uh, you know, no deal on cutting output from OPEC and non-OPEC companies uh, countries, but did the cap uh, agreement announced uh, last week? Uh, did that put a floor under oil? Because we really haven't seen a big drop since then. Well, I, I really can't agree with the argument that uh, the freeze provided a positive inflection because when you think about uh, Russian output, um, it's doubtful that that growth could have been much more significant. Um, and uh, Saudi capacity, uh, it's doubtful that uh, they could have raised the sp uh, turned the spigot on even more. Um, so I don't see how that can be viewed as a significant positive. Net-net, you still have Iranian capacity that's coming on, uh, and you still have growth from Iraq. So you still have on a global basis these imbalances uh, uh, promoted by OPEC and its willingness to continue uh, to produce. We've got uh, just about 30, 40 seconds left, so I have to ask this quickly, but uh, the, the bankruptcy situation a month from now. Uh, what we have seen, um, uh, what we have seen is uh, continuing pressure on the operators, especially those that uh, have not hedged coming into 2016. There is a view that uh, additional cap capex cuts are coming in order to uh, bring cash flow more in line with capex. Uh, but there is stress in the system, and the operators are doing what they can to continue to stay in the fight. But there will be uh, ongoing stress on uh, some of the higher yield operators.
Raiders. All right, well, we've got to have you back talk more about that as we get closer uh, to March. Uh, well, we're very close to March. As we get into March, and we have to uh, start thinking about uh, whether the banks are going to start pulling their loans or not. Vince Piazza from Bloomberg Intelligence, thanks very much for coming in and joining us today. West Texas 3206, Brent 3412, and we were talking about gasoline, gasoline futures at a dollar one right now. Retail gas, one seventy-two a gallon. This is Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Surveillance, brought to you by SCNB, the bank for business, is on the move. Are you looking for the right banking partner? Go to scnb.com to learn more. Now open in Long Island City. Get your business moving with SCNB. Global business news, 24 hours a day at Bloomberg.com, the Radio Plus mobile app. And on your radio, this is a Bloomberg Business Flash. And I'm Karen Moscow. This update's brought to you by CBOE RMC. Come to the CBOE Risk Management Conference February 29th to March 2nd at the Hyatt Regency Coconut Point, Florida. Register and learn more at CBOERMCUS.com. Best Buy, the largest U.S. electronics retailer, saying fourth quarter profit fell 7.7 percent as weak demand for phones and tablets hurt sales. Its forecast for the first quarter missed analyst estimates, and its shares are down 3 percent this morning. Toronto Dominion Bank said fiscal first quarter profit rose 7.9 percent on gains in its Canadian and U.S. retail businesses. The lender raising its quarterly dividends 7.8 percent to 55 cents a share. European stocks and U.S. stock index futures are higher, led by banks and energy companies as oil. Well, oil has turned lower again, and we check the markets every 15 minutes throughout the trading day on Bloomberg. S&P E-mini futures are up two points. Dow E-mini futures up 19, and NASDAQ E-mini futures are up three. DAX in Germany is up 1.6%. 10-year Treasury up 6.30 seconds. The yield 1.72%. NYMEX crude oil is down 4 tenths percent or 12 cents to 32.03 a barrel. COMEX gold down 3 tenths percent or $3.20 to 12.35.90 an ounce. The euro is at $1.1036, the yen $112.46. And that's a Bloomberg Business Flash. Tom and Mike. Karen, thank you very much. Sidney Finkelstein is uh, one of the loneliest people in the world, I think. He is the uh, Roth Professor of Management at the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth College, which is in, of course, Hanover, New Hampshire. He and our old friend Danny Blanche for our time, the only two people left in the state now that the presidential candidates have all moved on and the reporters have left the state, the primary yeah. is over. And uh, Professor Finkelstein, now with enough time on his hands, he was able to write a new book. It's called Super Bosses. And we hope our super bosses are listening because he will give us advice on how to be one and uh, weigh in on some of the management issues out there in the world today. Uh, you, can you define a super boss other than one that gives Tom and I a big raise? Well, you know, a super boss is a leader, a boss that actually helps other people accomplish more than they ever thought possible. And you see these people in different industries when you look at a generation of talent that was developed by, say, Bill Walsh in football or Alice Waters in, in high-end restaurants. They just help produce and generate tremendous talent, helped other people do great things. All right, this is an interesting question and interesting timing because we, we do have this presidential campaign that blew through your state not long ago. Do we have any evidence that any of the candidates know how to manage? That's one of the criticisms of the incumbent these days was that he was not a boss before he became in charge of the hundreds of thousands of people who work for the United States government. 
The uh, the amazing thing about politics is that uh, pretty much until the last couple of election cycles, you didn't have to have any business experience. In fact, it would be really odd. And we had Mitt Romney, and of course we have we have Donald Trump, and uh, the styles of all these people are very different. But um, Trump uh, certainly has a uh, a big uh, track record. But um, running a real estate company and um, mostly licensing your name to uh, lots of other businesses is less about management and more about branding. So even him. Even you know Trump, who's the most businesslike of any of the players in the field today, um, probably is not uh, known right. as a great manager. A, a rave review for this book, folks. I'm going to go to page 128 in a minute. Professor Finkelstein, even Jeff Immelt, he of the Dartmouth Green, uh, liked your book. So at least one copy was sold. Uh, I, you know, I saw Julian Robertson the other day in truly his Central Park. You feature him as a hands-on delegator. Immelt is known as a hands-on delegator. This is a magical thing. How do you be a hands-on delegator? It's one of the secrets to what super bosses it do. Is. They do two they, they do two things that most people look at as, as opposites. You know, you're either a big delegator or you're a micromanager. Well, what super bosses do is that they'll give you a big job, they'll give you a big opportunity, but they'll also show up to work with you, often unannounced for an hour for a day. And it's not that they're gonna do your job, but because they know so much about the business themselves, they're challenging you, they're pushing you, they're teaching you, and they do both of those things yeah. together. One of the things I deal with every day, and folks, we have a, a really large surveillance team that makes the show go for five hours, is the way you tell people they screwed up, but it's okay that you screwed up. That's a, that, that's a delicate issue, isn't it? Yeah, that's a hard thing to do. And, you know, you, you, you have to provide feedback, whether somebody's doing a good job or not a good job. you got to tell them. Right. But at the same time, you can't kind of tamp down on, on anyone taking a risk, taking a chance, and get, getting punished for, right. you know, anything that doesn't go quite right. Mike, you know I go to the indexes always to find out what anybody, including Sidney Finkelstein, is doing. Yahoo or Marissa Meyer aren't in the index. Like I think that, you know, that's that's an interesting thing. Give us your appreciation of Marissa Meyer's tenure at Yahoo. It's been so visible, so controversial. It uh, it has, and I have some sympathy for her because she is she came in with this mega big brand name, and as a result, she's under the microscope. Now, of course, it goes hand in hand. That big brand name is what helped her get that job and helped her make as much money as she makes. So now you have to produce. It hasn't gone well, obviously. Um, I didn't include her in the uh, in the book because I didn't find any evidence that uh, she was a person that has this track record developing lots and lots of other people. But you know, more specifically, I think the problem. Yahoo is no one's really figured out how to make money out of the thing, other than some genius move to buy, uh, invest in Alibaba years ago. The uh, the thing you hear over and over again from people who have been successful is uh, you should hire people who are smarter than you. But, but how do you do that? I don't think it's actually that uh, that hard. It takes some guts. You have to be willing to look uh, look at the people you're uh, you're interviewing and talking to and saying, you know, I'm I, I want the world's best people around me. And you know what it takes? It takes tremendous. If you think about it, it takes tremendous self confidence. You got to have that confidence not to feel threatened by people that come in with tremendous track records. So we all know, you know, that's a good thing to do, as you say. But I think a lot of people have this this element of of insecurity. They don't want to be shown up, and it's exactly the wrong thing that you want to have because you're going you're going to do way better if you're surrounded by great people. What's the uh, the the one thing the one thing somebody could do if they want to move along the path to becoming a super boss? Well, for me, um, 
it's uh, it's a mindset it's a way of uh, it's a way of thinking it's saying you know um, i'm not just going to do what i'm going to do but i'm going to um, i'm going to focus very specifically on the people around me and in my team and there's so many ways to start you could uh, for example uh, customize how you interact with people on your team customization you know being close to customers is such a common obvious thing in so many walks of life but when it comes to managing managing people how bosses behave we have this thing called leadership styles everybody talks about what type of style they are and i think that's uh, i think that's actually a dumb idea because a leadership style gives you an excuse to act the same way to everybody and Thank say look you. that's who i am yeah, but the heart of this, going back to Catherine Hepburn and other great method actors, is it's about method versus style. And in your world, and I don't mean tuck, but I mean in the pseudo-MBA world, you got too many people yammering about style and not worried about the core method, the day-to-day method of how to provide leadership. Do I have that right? Well, I'm not going to uh, denigrate the whole NBA world on that one, but I happen to agree. Well, with what to you denigrate said. half of it, you know. <laughs> well, the half that's not up in Hanover, New Hampshire, maybe. Um, yeah, you know, method. I think that's not a bad analogy. How you treat people, how you interact with people, knowing what each person on your team, what makes them tick, what, how do you motivate them? I mean, that's something you mentioned, Julian Robertson, before, in some with some of the interviews I did with you know people like Chase Coleman and others that have been you know very successful. They talked about how Julian would tailor how he interact with people, and and some people he was really 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 tough on, and other ones he understood a different you know maybe a little bit of a lighter touch was needed to get people to go where they needed to. To go. I'm curious as to how, if you're a super boss, you look at this. Is it an effort to make the company great, make others succeed underneath you, or is it an effort to make yourself look good reflected in uh, the way the company performs? So there's two things I'd say to, to that. You know, one is the motivation in the first place. Not every super boss has the same motivation. Some are um, are driven by the idea of helping other people get better. They're nurturers. They're they're mentors. And then there's others. I think of um, you know someone like Larry Ellison, who is really really tough. And it's not that he cares so much about the people around him, but he does care about winning. And he understands that to win, you need the world's best talent. You need the world's best teams. And that's what helps those other people get uh, get better. So it, the, the mindset could be a little bit different depending on the person, but they end up in the same place. They end up doing pretty much the same types of things and how they how they interact and, and how they act mm-hmm. as a boss. Thank you so much, Sidney Finkelstein. Uh, it is short, it is sharp, how exceptional leaders master the flow of talent, super bosses. This, of course, the good work out of Tuck. Uh, up at uh, Dartmouth, Mike. It's it just it, it really moves. I mean, the, the, the show, uh, the book rather, uh, 212, 214 pages just flies by. Are you uh, uh, are you a super boss to our we, team? Well, you know, I alluded to that earlier. I don't know if I'm a super boss or you're a super boss, but the basic idea of doing it from a distance, you can't do that anymore. No. John Rice at GE. In Davos, who works out of Hong Kong, was adamant, distance is done. I mean, you just, you don't do it from some throne or world headquarters from a distance anymore. It's just done. You gotta be in the trenches, even if you're keeping your mouth shut. I don't do that. Why you's with us? Why you, did I keep my mouth shut at the 5 a.m. meeting this morning? Never. Okay. Never. <laughs> the answer was never. There it is, folks, in terms of how we do it. At He's a super what? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. My book's going to be called Super Putzes. That's what I am. No. Uh, but, 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 but seriously, folks, it's an interesting book. Sidney Finkelstein, 
super bosses as well. We've got a super data check. Futures up two, down futures up 19 yen, stable at 112.44. Actually, dollar declining off DXY a little bit. Michael McKee and Tom Keen were delegating another hour of Bloomberg surveillance. <laughs> 